Hello and welcome everybody to the Father, the Daughter, and the Holy Podcast. Join my father and I as we discuss relevant and meaningful ideas and values inspired by the weekly Torah portion. Our goal is to open our discussion to you in the hopes that it will give you something to think and reflect on, as well as be another interesting conversation that you can have with your family, friends, and peers. So let's delve right in. Hello and welcome everybody to another episode of the Father, the Daughter, and the Holy Podcast. We are back from our one-week break, and (laughs) we were traveling, so we missed it. But we are back this week and super excited to share our thoughts on this week's Parsha. Let's talk about politics and power, and the power of the, the, and the power of the word, power of ideas. Mm-hmm. So where, where, what part of this week's parsha are you taking that idea from? Well, first, before we jump there, let's, let's talk about like why are people excited, interested in politics? What is politics? What uh, are, are men and women equally interested in politics? Why do people get excited about politics? Do you think people are more politically inclined today, which means to get involved in politics or less? I mean, I know it's hard to have a, a perspective if you're all of 23 years old, but maybe you get a sensation of like people are really into politics, stuff you read about families getting divided because of their political you know, positions. Like, what the heck? That's, that's kind of... Um, that's something that we would hear in, you know, when politics was like really roiling. Um, you can imagine in, I don't know, Europe, pre-World War One. you know, you can imagine people have becoming divided, you know, if they were communists or socialists or Bundists or free, you know, capitalists or stuff. I mean, that, you know, this was when the beginning of the ideas that were germinating in that time could have created a, a lot of this di- difference mm-hmm. and distinction amongst people and perhaps, you know, violence, which obviously did turn out to be quite, quite violent. Um, these ideas percolating in society without resolution, without good ways to um, resolve the differences, unfortunately sometimes ends with war. So where, where are we going with this? So what, you're, you're suggesting that politics today aren't, are not as intense as they were. It, it, there was an ebb, I think, when after World War II, people had enough of like dealing with all the differences in the world. People were into, let's see if we could repair the world. And wars became a little more distant, you know, out in far, far east, you know, in Asia. You know, Vietnam and Korea and uh, wielding power from a distance, you know, in the Cold War, trying to control the world like chess pieces. But it wasn't, it wasn't coming like home, like there wasn't great debates between the communists and the capitalists, you know. It wasn't something that people were living with. People were like settled with it and ready to deal with it. But now I feel that there's like a resurgence of like where do you stand on things? The, mm-hmm. the ideas of the world are uh, becoming much more... There's a revolution going on. There's a technical technological revolution. There's what that carries in its wake. There's... A new world order in the sense that things are much more closer. There's a global economy. People have um, been living through a lot of change these days, and that creates a lot of tension and a lot more talk about politics. So what is politics? Politics, 
Politics is the talk of polis, the polis, which means the collective, the the collective life, collective life, right? Now, that doesn't really help for what we want to talk about because what I'm more interested in is why are we interested in it? And the simple reason is, is because most people don't want to be felt that they're being controlled by others, you know, whimsically controlled by others. They want to feel more in control of their own lives. So politics, in another word, is power. It's where people decide what other people are going to do or what they're going to be able to be to benefit from or to access or to et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Who gets things. to enforce what? Leaders. So when you talk about politics, you're talking about leadership, making decisions. And the decisions that they make are the decisions that are going to affect you. So right, you're, but I'm saying, but you, what you're saying is there's the, the struggle of politics is who is going to get to decide for other people or what is going to be decided. Right. Um, so the, the interest in politics um, certainly starts from a sense of insecurity. In other words, a person doesn't want to feel that they're being manipulated or moved in different directions, all of a sudden uh, prohibited, all of a sudden restricted. Or kept in the unknown, meaning there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes that if you're not aware of, then like but, what you're saying, the the end result would be being taken advantage of, not knowing. Right, the bottom, bottom line is they're, they're, making, they're taking decisions over your life. Nobody likes that. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody's going to make a decision that's going to affect you. You want to feel that, you want to feel somewhat in control. No person looking into the mirror says like, what am I really going to do, right? So if you're assuming that person looking back from the mirror is not an activist, they'll say, well, I can, you know, make like I know what's going on in politics. And that's why you have the most ridiculous conversations about politics on a very low level, where people are just kind of like, you know, um, nodding to themselves or to others that are willing to listen to them, kind of winking at themselves, saying like, you know, I know enough to throw some stupid generalities around. So I say and call them stupid because they're usually uninformed generalities about really what's really going on. But I'm going to make like I know what's going on. And I'm going to throw out some really broad sweeping statements about well, this guy and this politician and that president and this guy, you know, and the senator and what the Americans are doing and what everybody's doing, you know, and even I don't, I'm not really schooled in, in political science. I don't really know how power works amongst those that wield power in governments. I, don't, I just read the papers, let's say. And those people are willing to like, you know, take some serious, uh, at least to themselves, positions that they don't, really don't know much about. And that whole phenomenon, I think, really just comes to the human need of wanting to feel a little bit more secure and protected in the, in the false sense of like, at least even if they can't control what's going on, but at least they I'm know, part of it. At, least, at least they know, at least they can feel that they are not going to be totally sideswiped by something. They're going to, you know, predict it, so to speak, or they're going to, they're in the know, you know, they're in the know. So that gives a person a sense of power. It's like mm-hmm. to reclaim a little power that governments take away from people. Right. Okay, so, so there's that base feeling, right? But there is also a feeling, I think, that people feel that is that there's just a genuine interest in how power works. There's a genuine, genuine interest in how power works. Power is, like I said, the ability to create change. And when you have power, like in power in the natural world also is the ability to move things, right? To create change. 
power in the, in the social, political realm is also the ability to create change in society. Uh-huh. Right? You're going to pass a bill. You're going to make more taxes, less taxes. You're going to provide more security, less security. I mean, all these things are going to affect the citizens of wherever it is that you're wielding the power. Mm-hmm. Okay. Would you say that in the, in the case of people who aren't really politicians and aren't talking about security measures or uh, bills of any sort, but let's say you're talking about celebrities or people who have a lot of money, everyone usually says that money is power. Would you say that it's because then, once again, with money you can have the wherewithal to create a lot of change, whether that's creating organizations or just because you have so much money you get a lot of attention and therefore definitely. you have a, a platform from to speak on and you have a lot of influence and definitely for some reason people think what you have to say is more important because you have a lot of money definitely <laughs> but you're crossing over into another issue i'm trying, trying to break over the issue break separate the issues a little bit but but yeah money definitely is power um i think just to analyze it a little bit deeper um and this is why i asked that are like men and women diff- somewhat differently attracted to power I think men are more attracted to power I think men have a thing with power um, men have a thing with like controlling things more than women well you can take it or leave it I think it's true but certainly it was traditionally true I don't know like today women you know acting like men but men feel much more you know if you look at it from a little bit more of an apologetic perspective Men feel much more insecure at themselves until they have power. They need they need to feel in control. Mm-hmm. It speaks much more to the man to the masculine spirit. So men, generally speaking, get involved in, in politics, and men, right? So generally, you're going to find men in power positions and looking for politics, um, looking to understand politics, looking to get involved in politics. It's just a point of bringing it out. So. I think what, what this reminds me of is, is the following. I think that we have a very um, difficult thing in the episode of uh, this week's Parsha, which deals with Parsha of Balak and Bilam, the king of uh, Moab, who feels threatened by the Jewish people's encroachment or um, their... Uh, <clears throat> coming in, desire to, you know, cross over his land, to get into the land of Israel. And even though they had no beef with him, but he just feels very threatened by them. He feels that they're going to eventually take over the region. And he's looking for a novel approach because he clearly doesn't want to face them in the battlefield. And he's looking for a novel approach about how to uh, break them down, how to eliminate the threat. And there's a lot of things that we can ask on the get-go, which, which remind me of, um, of the issue that we're bringing up today, which has to do with power. And, and I want to like, break them down. The story basically goes that they go to a fellow who is not known previously in the Bible, in the Torah, and his name is Bilam. But what we understand that he seems to be a very important person. He seems to be a very important person, um, even referred to as, perhaps not explicitly, but as kind of a prophet, mm-hmm. uh, like a prophet for hire, so to speak. And he's being asked to curse the Jewish people. And the assumption is, the underlying assumption is that if he curses them, then that will be like a real body blow to the Jewish people, to the Israelites trying to get into Israel. 
And that's, and that's really the best this guy, you know, Bala can do. And then there's this whole preamble to this, to the, you know, for him to fulfill the bidding of this king, you know, Balak, where, you know, they come to him, they ask him, and he says yes, and he says no, and then he says, well, if you give me money, but if you don't give me money, but anything, anything I can say is only going to be through God. I only work through God's channels, and if God wants to curse, he'll curse, but if he doesn't, he won't. And then he says, well, anyway, and how come you're not coming? And then it's like this whole game, and then finally he decides to come, and God kind of intervenes and tells him, well, you can go, but you can only say what I tell you to say. And then he gets on a donkey, and the donkey doesn't want to go, and the donkey <laughs> crashes into a wall, and then he sees a, uh, a manifestation of an angel, and the angel again warns him and says, like, what are you doing? And, you know, you like kind of like bullying. It's like kind of like meeting the bully, you know, from the mafia boss on the way. He's going to just like pop your lights out if you don't do what you were <laughs> supposed to do. Like he's really being warned like again and again until he finally meets the king, uh, you know, and he tells him to come up to a particular place and he does his whole rite with sacrifices. And then on three occasions, he basically does this and he tries to curse. And instead of cursing, he blesses the Jewish people. And at the end, he leaves a whole bunch of other like uh, ominous, you know, prophecies about other nations around the area, uh, etc. And that's the end of the story. And after that story, there's a, it seems to be a, seduc- a, mass, a massive seduction of the Jewish people where uh, many, many people get involved in this massive seduction by Midianite women. And it creates a whole hullabaloo amongst the people and people are killed and they die in a, in a plague. And it's a horrible situation. It's, but the bottom line is, is that the main plate, <laughs> the main dish of the, of the Parsha is something that's in, it's just impossible to understand. What in the world, how are we today in 2022 supposed to understand the technique or the, the tactic of trying to find somebody to go curse the people? I mean, what in the world is that? How are we supposed to understand that? How are we supposed to understand he's going to curse them? What does that even mean, he's going to curse them? <laughs> I curse you! You are cursed! Who cares? <laughs> what is that even going to do? And even if you're going to believe in some supernatural thing, which we don't understand exactly how it works, but they, the Jewish people and the Israelites at that time weren't protected for some guy cursing them, and if they were going to be cursed, they were going to be cursed. If they were, well, how is he going to affect the destiny of the Jewish people at that time? Because he, some guy on a mountaintop is looking at them and trying to curse them from you know 45 degree angle. <laughs> what does that even mean? So it's very difficult to take it seriously. What like how I I've been looking over and over for ways to try to understand the story. That's so interesting, though, because I wouldn't really, I wouldn't have raised an eyebrow at it because within the context of, of Balak and Bilham and the Jewish nation at the moment, we understand already from previous history reading in, in, the, in the Torah and then also understanding that context that there is a power to, um, there is power in what you say and there's also this understanding that there's, there's a spiritual realm that it definitely seems that back then they were a lot more in tune with. And there's this, this understanding that you can actually curse people. Saying okay, God, there's the high grisim and, and, the, and, the, and the, the mountain of blessings and the mountain of curses. And God gives us curses and there are blessings. Like, no, why but wait, would, wait, 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 wait. Those, that's different. That's different. I mean, Why would it be different? You, you, you can choose, like I said before, you can choose to believe whatever it is but without understanding it. It's fine. I choose to believe. I choose to believe it by trying to understand it, understand it at least through some prism. 
And as far as bringing the case of the, the mountains, the mountains aren't curses. They're like, this is what's going to happen to you. If you notice, the curses are really um, outcomes. They're, like they're, they're ramifications of what you do. If you do, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. That's different. That's, that's if you say, like if I tell you, look, I have a vision that proper behavior is this. If you have a vision of, of a different vision of what behavior is, and, and, and I think it's wrong, I'm going to tell you, look, you're doing wrong behavior. This is where it's going to lead you. That's a curse, right? It's not a curse because I'm fabricating something out of nowhere, right? Mm -hmm. It has to... Now, you can tell me that the curse also in the case of Bilam was some kind of... He was trying to find... That's the way our tradition understands it. He's trying to find some kind of a... As we say in Spanish, like a hilacha. Like a... A string. Like a... Like a... Like the negative side. Like some kind of a condemning point of something it has to do with our behavior or our past behavior or the way we are, the way they were, and mm -hmm. latching onto that and basically like looking at the glass half empty with a negative spin and looking at a person who might represent a lot of good things, but if you look at all the things that he represents which are bad and you magnify them, so then you have done great damage. Now, the damage is what I'm curious about, right? Because I think we're going to go along this approach, but, but the damage is what I'm talking about that's a little bit difficult to understand. Because just because, you say, just because you see it doesn't mean you create damage. Like, what is this curse that he's damaged that he's creating? Mm -hmm. like, you know what I'm saying? You're not, you're not talking about... You're talking about a guy who's coming in for very, for, to pronounce something, and then he's going to disappear. He's not going to be a person who's going to be on the scene. doesn't seem to be a person who's going to be a constant... And constantly involved in this. So what is it? So I don't understand what it is. Also, it seems to be we take it very seriously, right? Mm -hmm. Not only does it take up a lot of space in this parsha, which is like an, an exorbitant amount of space, but it's also mentioned in other places in the Torah that God saved us from the curse of Bilam, right. you know, and the mandat that we should know that God, you know, favored us and He protected us. What? What is this imminent threat here that we're facing? Like, what is the threat? How do you get into that threat? I just, it's something that's been bothering me for many, for many, many years. Uh -huh. But I think, I think if we, if we pursue the introductory comments that we were talking about, I think we um, will understand why the Torah takes us so seriously. Um, you know, he, Bilam is, uh, in, a, in, a, in certain ways, it's also compared to our, our arch enemy. Mm -hmm. Our arch enemy Amalek. Actually, his first prophecy that he says is actually a prophecy about Amalek. Right, the king of Amalek is going to be destroyed. Agag is going to be destroyed by the Jewish people. Which, of all things to see, and your first sighting and your first you know proclamation about the Jewish people, like why I mentioned that, it must be there's some kind of a connection to him and Amalek as well. And if you think about it, Amalek, the first story of Amalek with the Jewish people is that they attack when we're vulnerable in the desert. And we just right. got out of Egypt. Now it wasn't like a, it was like a broadside. It wasn't like a full frontal attack because it doesn't seem that at any point in time the Jewish people's existence was in, was in peril. Perhaps if you read the story very seriously in the, in, in, uh, the end of B'Shalach, it does seem that way, but when we look back at it, it seems that the, the worst thing about the attack was the fact that they had the brazenness to attack. And the famous... The famous um, parable that's used is like if you have a person who's everybody's staring at this hot, you know, scalding bath, 
and nobody wants to jump in. And one guy decides to jump in and burn his skin badly. But he does it just so that others will be able to get the guts to jump in and also he'll cool it down for everybody else in a certain sense. So Malek is seen as that. He's the person that like, instead of seeing the Jewish people for what they were supposed to be seen for, which is God's nation taken out of Egypt, special status, a, a collective, a collective uh, closeness to God, right? And, and a representation of God in the world, right? They say, we're not plussed. We're not impressed. We're just going to jump in. And we're going to show that uh, there's nothing really special about them. There's nothing really special about God in the world. God doesn't really manifest himself in the world in such ways. And we just don't believe it. And we're going to, even if it means that we're going to get squashed, we'd rather do that for the cause than to have these people parading around like they, they represent God or that God is some kind of representation in the world. So I think what's really going on over here with Bilam is the same thing. I think that Bilam, it seems, was a very, um, he was a very influential person in the world. Uh-huh. He was like, and it's certainly according to our tradition, he was the prophet of all the nations. Nation, nation, nations of the world never had a prophet, or they certainly never had a prophet like this, right? Who was even compared to Moshe Rabbeinu. So, in a sense, without looking at the prophecy and trying to understand what prophecy is, which is, again, part of the problem of what we're trying to grapple with over here, what kind of a curse and what kind of a prophecy and what does that all mean? I think the, the way in the door to understand this whole thing is like, imagine if Bilam were Goebbels, Goebbels, who was the propaganda minister for the Nazi party, for Hitler. Oh, so what? Joseph Goebbels, right? So if you've ever seen a picture of him, he's like a slick dude. Right? He's wearing all these slick Italian suits. He doesn't look like a Nazi dude. He's, not wearing, he's usually not wearing a uniform. He's a propaganda minister. Mm-hmm. Right? Arguably, though, he might have done more damage to pave the way for the destruction of European Jewry than anybody else. Because what he had was the gift of gab, the gift of the word, the spoken word, the manipulation of people's thinking, mm-hmm. the creation of the Jew being the aggressor. Stereotypicalization. Right. The, 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 um, the uh, promulgation, the, the proliferation of the idea of the Jew being the heartless... Uh, money-mongering. Money-mongering, manipulative... Out for uh, world domination. World domination Goal. doesn't care about anybody except themselves. The typical... The typical uh, anti-Semitic ideas and tropes that he uh, perfected, that he perfected with his people, and were incredibly successful in in communicating it to large, large audiences, without being without many, much checks or balances there in the, in the society. He had free reign, and it wasn't only in Germany, but it was also it, it got out of Germany, and a lot of the books that they prepared. All on uh, on a half decent, you know, um, journalistic level and a sophisticated level. Some of them, right, um, really got the word out in a, and, and really changed minds and changed attitudes, and it certainly softened up people's moral resolve not to do evil against other people for no reason. Right, it gave them the excuse to find that scapegoat that. Has always been resting on, on the over the Jews 
heads for thousands of years. You could say he revived it, he, he, re- he re-engineered it, whatever you want to say. But he's a good example for how important and how powerful the, the word is. Mm-hmm. And how the, the, the power of ideas... Right, I was going to say, it's not so much, the word, word is definitely powerful, but a lot of propaganda had no words, it's just a, a picture, an image, it's an idea more than anything. Right. Um, so, so what, what I'd like to f- suggest is that really, Bilam is, it, it, you have to imagine a world, you know, with no, it, it's a world without any type of communication that we're, in, we're used to. It's much, it's totally primitive, right? If you imagine Bilam being that, like Vosero, he is the voice, he, he's the world's voice, right? He's mouthpiece. the voice. He's the mouthpiece, right? He's the mouthpiece. He's the spokesman. He's the spokesman, and he's going to. The thing is with him, he's not just going to make up the bald-faced lie, right? Because that's going to be worthless. He's going to have to find something for the truth to rest on. Because as we know, you could always look at something from two different ways. Mm-hmm. The, the coin. As, uh, on either side of the coin, it says different things. You, you, if you look at it in a different way, you'll see a different perspective. And with that perspective, he'll truthfully announce to the world that this, you know, B'nai Israel, this Israelite idea, this whole nation thing, is really a bunch of bogus. It doesn't amount to anything. Um, they'll never become anything. They're horrible. They come from not such glorious beginnings, their, their stay in Egypt was whatever, they have done this, they've done that, they've been treacherous, they've betrayed God, They etc. Things that, let's say, the Christian religion has been guilty of over the millennia that they're, of their existence, which is trying to put us down, put the Jewish people down, in a way that really denigrates the Jewish people. Right? In other words, you could always, like I said, no one's perfect, no people is perfect. And if you choose to harp on the things that you feel are, you know, um, the only thing worthy of mention, so then you will eventually convince the people that there's, it's really worthless. Right. It's, or their time has, has passed. Like the Christians had said, like, you know, Jews, Muslims say too that Jews were, or the Israelite people were, the, you know, they, they definitely had something going for a certain period of time, but then they lost it due to their behavior and due to their their lack of trust in God, and etc., etc., and they're just blowing two commonwealths and getting destroyed twice and getting thrown out of their homeland twice. They, that's it. They, they just don't have that status anymore, and they're gone. They're off the scene. They don't, they don't have power. They shouldn't be reckoned with, really, as, as, uh, as having any say into, uh, into what religion should be and how you should connect to God. Nothing. Nothing. They're just there, and they just are a pain in the neck. Because they insist on clinging to what they once had, and really they just mess things up for everybody, and they, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So that whole narrative is the world narrative, was the world narrative for an incredible amount of time. And I think this is the beginning of it. I think what Moab's idea was, was let's hire, uh, hire Bilam to do this. He's going to be our Goebbels. He's going to pass, in other words, if we, perhaps we can't directly, frontally attack the Jewish people, but we can create um, a, a world opinion about them uh-huh. that's going to take them down. Because they can't live in a vacuum. Right. If the whole world thinks that they're trash, then they'll be trash, and they'll be trashed around. 
Be- meaning because this is also taking into consideration that so far Am Yisrael has been riding the waves of glory, so to speak. The, the shmua, the, what's being said about them is, you know, God's with them and they're winning all the wars and just the thought of the Jewish nation coming into Israel has a lot of nations really nervous and they're scared and so this tactic would be one of defamation, basically. Right, very deep defamation. Mm -hmm. And and it's not just like it's a game. What I'm trying to point out is that this is very serious. Right. This is very, very serious. It's so serious that um, you see even in, in this coming parsha, which we read in Israel about Pinchas, that, you know, Pinchas makes this heroic deed, which in the context, in the actual context, wasn't so uh, accepted. It wasn't, it wasn't a deed that was so accepted at the time. It wasn't, you don't just go and kill a leader of the Jewish people, a prince, because you feel he's doing the wrong thing. And, you know, the, the directions weren't, the instructions weren't 100% clear exactly if you were allowed to do such a thing. Mm-hmm. But the point is, is that... Uh, the first opening, you know, Rashi in Parshas Pinchas says that, you know, God was worried about Pinchas's reputation because people were saying things about him. And you'd say, like, well, you know, they said, who is this guy? He's from this guy. So, you know, so you wonder, like, will you stoop so low to, you know, to worry about what people say? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes, that the narrative, the narrative is so powerful mm-hmm. that it almost doesn't matter what the truth is. Right. Because the narrative can distort this is the, the curse of the Nachash. This is the curse of the original snake. That you can dress truth in different ways and you can distort truth in different ways based on how you spin it. And unfortunately, this is what we see today. I, I, I can't tell you how frustrating and helpless I feel sometimes when you just see people accepting lies uh, right. almost as if the truth doesn't matter. And when we talk about discussions about the state of Israel today and BDS and people that are venomously against the state of Israel, when you challenge them to sit down and really talk through something based on facts and evidence, they're not willing to do it. And it doesn't even matter anymore. And intelligent people are not willing to do the heroic, which is in commas, in quotes, you know, heroic thing of like standing up for, for what's, you know, factual like, let's see, was there a massacre? Did they, are they accused of doing something that they actually didn't do? What was the context? Was this a war? Were they attacked? What, was the, what would you do? What, like, any, only the basic questions that get to the truth, nobody's willing to, the detractors of the state of Israel are not willing to go there. Mm-hmm. And that's very frustrating. It's very frustrating because it's very dangerous. Right. You can only say for so long, like, ah, whatever, people will say what they'll say. But... At a certain point, there's a tipping point where people say, that's it, that's the truth. And that's what's so precarious in general about history, in general. Like, how do we know anything? If something's not demonstrable, if something's not evident that you can see in front of your face, right? It's just what people say. How do we know that anything existed ever? How do we know there was a Shakespeare or Aristotle or that the Greek culture was this or that or that, the, or that the, we had... Uh, a commonwealth in Israel for 500 years and then for another 500 years and then there was King David and then he con- I mean how do we know anything why would we trust history at all well there are some that already don't like the whole holocaust deniers and that's what i mean like how can the, you know the, the, probably those the most frustrating uh, stories or you know that that may become movies or try to f- create this frustration of where like you have this one person who's holding the truth 
and all the all the watchers of the movie are like, you know, like, oh my gosh, the whole world is turning against this guy. He's the only possessor of the truth. And there's nothing he can do about it because nobody, that's it. There's no truth. There's nothing to bring anybody together again because for some reason everybody's brainwashed into believing whatever it is that they're believing. Mm, classic like The Giver. Oh, there's like a million stories like that. Right. Like, you know, every, every Twilight Zone was like, I mean, there's just, it's, you know what I'm saying? And then, and then you feel like, oh my gosh, what is the world actually resting on? Right? Like the, like the Mishnah says, what does the world rest on? Well, it's MS Vashon Ladin, right? Truth, peace, and justice. If there's no truth, there's no world. Hmm. If people don't care about what the truth is, people just want to be in with the flow that's based on some flimsy, logical, emotional stance. Where are we going? You can't debate things. You can't say anything. And I think that... Um, that's why the Torah says Bilam is a real story. I mean, it's like if it wasn't for the fact that there was some divine intervention, the whole B'nai Yisrael project could have been killed right there at the roots. Mm. Wow. I like that. It's, it makes it very real. That's what I mean. Yeah. But I think it's not the end of the story. I think that's just the beginning of the story. If you, if you start that way, now you can go a little deeper into like, okay, in those contexts of prophecy and curses, you know, what could that possibly have meant then? We don't really know, but at least when you start from, from understanding what the power of that is that we're talking about even today, then you can go deeper into the story and say, well, what might it have been, what might it have meant then, mm-hmm. you know, to do something like this? Like how, how much more beef, you know, and, and reality can you create through a prophet, who's like looking very penetratingly at a people and cursing them and like whatever you you have a way of thinking about it now as opposed to just as opposed to just like attributing it to some kind of a mysterious something effect or whatever it is right Hmm. so like the the finishing of that though in this case is a little bit grim like in in, with, with Bilam we have God creates curses into blessings um, but then if taking that example to now and we're saying that there really is a reality on the ground where there is, really is a lack of truth. People are not really interested in hearing the truth. People aren't interested in um, exposing themselves to truth, to being uncomfortable, to different opinions, different ways of thinking. What's the hope for us now? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think, we're get, I think it's going to have to get worse before it gets better. It's like all the swings of the pendulum in world history. Uh, usually what happens is that it gets really bad until people get so beat up that they realize that they have to do things differently. Mm. It's very hard to convince, go out and convince people to, to do and think differently if they're not facing the consequences of their, of their positions. Right. As long as they can play the game, they'll play the game. Mm. I guess then it would be an important takeaway for, for us and our listeners to... Um, to, to take the point home that the to become aware really that there is a desire in all of us to feel like we're part of what's going on in the world because none of us like to feel like we're in unknown or we don't know where we're going to be taken advantage of and that really does create within ourselves this really strong desire to feel like we know to be involved and to read up maybe one or two articles and then kind of give yourself that feeling of comfort of like oh I know what's going on now um 
And, and so therefore, once we're aware of this, we can really ask ourselves with genuine, um, g- genuine authenticity. Like, are, do, are we really interested for the information's sake? Or am I interested in this because I don't want to feel left out or I don't want to feel like I don't know what's going on or I don't want to get hoodwinked into something or other. Um, and to then, if we decide that we really want to know things because truth is important and the honesty is always good and knowing what's going on in the world is always a wonderful thing if, if you want, then then to truly make it an endeavor to search for what really is truth and not to just be satisfied with the garbage that is so easily accessible in every place and then let yourself be part of that vicious cycle of then propagating garbage. Or you, you'll read two articles here and there without really seeing what the sources are, what the truth is. You're kind of just in that flow of like, and like, oh, I also know, and I also want to say opinions, and I also want to share things, blah, blah, blah. Read a couple things and then be like, oh, I know it. And then you also then become one more link in the chain of news and information and the power struggle of things that isn't really even based on anything. Um, so to really um, decide if, if we're going to take part in the vicious cycle of self-assurance and comfort and spitting out garbage, or if we're really going to take the time to educate ourselves, understand where things are going, what the truth of the matter is, to accept unknown, be, be comfortable with not knowing, with the, not having the truth right now, not getting the full picture right now, and, and, and I also knowing that it's okay to not know everything. I feel like so many people give opinions on everything because not giving an opinion means that you, you're out of the picture. You, you're not relevant if you don't have an opinion. Um, and it was cute. One of my clients was a 13 year old girl and she was, she really wanted, she really wanted to like have an opinion about everything. So I had asked her, you know, why, why is it so important for you to just have an opinion on everything? Like, could it be that you don't have an opinion on ice cream? (laughs) But like to her, the always having something to say, having an opinion meant, made, made her relevant. Not having an opinion meant that maybe you're not going to be cool enough to be in your friend group anymore. Or um, in your social circles, you're just not going to be someone people look to for something to say. You're like, oh, what do you think? Everyone wants to feel like what they have to say is important and everyone wants to be taken seriously. And there's this fear that if you don't have what to say right away and if you don't have a position, then that must mean that you're stupid and not relevant. And um, clearly you're just not up to date, which I feel like is everyone's fear of not being relevant. Um, So just throwing these things out for us um, as maybe not the ultimate solution, but um, definitely something to to think about and be aware as we ourselves are living in this period of desperate need for control, for information, for truth or not truth, but to really tap into our needs, where they're coming from, our need to, to be involved in politics and what's going on in the, in the big yent invent of the world um, and to proceed in a way where we're not really falling into that same trap and we're being really honest with, with what we're looking for and what we want so that we maybe can, in our own way, each make a difference in the way information is, is treated and, and we treat each other and we connect to ourselves and to the world and hopefully we can see more, more people who are more willing to, to pursue truth and not be satisfied with whatever makes them feel good. Amen. Well, it was, it was good what you did there with those two ideas to bring it home. 
that um, there are different interests and in why people get involved in politics and uh, some of the interest that's developed into politics these days is uh, does start on a basic level of wanting to be more control of your life or at least lives or at least having that feeling. Um, but it shouldn't stop there. It, we should realize that uh, we are purveyors of knowledge and and uh, the ideas that we espouse are to the extent that they're influential, at least as one of many, it gives us, uh, we should feel the responsibility towards um, being more accurate and more, um, more convinced if what we're actually saying really represents what we feel to be true. I want to just end off by saying that there's a, an interesting statement about what power is by a fellow named Rick Miller who was writing for Forbes magazine that I saw a while ago. And he says like this, real power is what happens when people connect what they do to what they are. So it's a certain, it's a certain sense of like being honest with oneself right. about what it is that I represent. It's not just like, the opposite of that would be a person who just espouses or just spews um, you know, positions that really have nothing to do or not consistent at all with what they are or what they do. You're saying basically the difference between a hypocrite and an honest person. Right. In other words, the hypocrite is not a person with real power. They can make like they have power. But ultimately, if, um, if, if what you so are so passionate about, you know, people, I love these passionate, you know, great liberal ideas about, you know, being uh, equality and equity and whatever it is, you know, until it comes down to it. You know, they're not walking that walk. They're, they're saying, you know, we should be, the world should be this. It should be uh, safe for everyone. It should have, uh, we should worry about global warming. But yeah, but when it comes to your, you know, huge house and your th three cars, you know, you're not really thinking about that. You know what I'm saying? You're, you're, we have a saying in Judaism, first, sincerar. There's no word for it in English, but make yourself sincere and then try to make others sincere where you can attempt at it. But if you're not sincere yourself to yourself, there's no way that you can make another sense. And ultimately, if we're saying that politics is power and power is the power to change, you can't create change unless the change is somehow represented within yourself. I guess that's a good note to leave off on, though. Yeah, that's real power. It's not it's, it's real power. It's, it's, it's true. Because ultimately, people are always, people get to see through other people if they don't really represent. They have conveniences that they say in, in Hebrew, they say yeah, they have giyut, um, what do they say? Like bias. Yeah, there's a bias. People have a bias to do things because it's more convenient, comfortable for them. But it's not really what they are. It's not what they do. All right. Well, well. this was lovely. <laughs> See you next week. And we'd love to hear your feedback on this topic. There's definitely a lot to say and a lot that I guess wasn't said as well. So we're always happy to hear. And uh, we hope that this gave you something to think about, something to discuss with others, something to work on. And uh, have a lovely week, everybody. And that's a wrap, my friends. We hope that our conversation inspired you and gave you something to chew on. Please send us your feedback, questions, comments, topics you'd be interested in discussing, and even triggers so we can generate more relevant and meaningful conversation. You can contact us at fdhp.feedback at gmail.com. And we are wishing you a blessed week, and we'll catch you next time.